John Ritchie is a legend. John Ritchie is one of the important novelists of, the, of, of our time, uh, one of the most important novelists of our time, an icon uh, for many, many reasons. Um, it was a, the, a great pleasure of my life when I got to meet John at his home some 10 years ago now, it seems. Um, and, uh, and we've been friends since. Um, and uh, and uh, with Michael as well, it's been an important relationship in our lives. Um, so this is a this is a, this is personal. That's what I'm saying. Um, and uh, and and uh, and I thought that the way we might start, John, if that's okay with you, is to talk about uh, the fact that Larb is uh, publishing a new piece of fiction by John Ritchie in our next quarterly journal which is, uh, was written before City of Night, um, uh, and which is now gonna come out in book form for the first time uh, after it's published in LARP. So um, tell us a little bit about, about that novel, John. Okay, but, but first of all, I want to, uh, to thank uh, uh, Gina and David uh, for this wonderful um, gathering. I, I've always remarked that, I mean, with Gina, but of course David too, that somebody that gorgeous, uh, that talented, <laughs> can also cook <laughs> so marvelously. <laughs> okay, and, and really thank you for your graciousness and your elegance, which I appreciate, and, and, and also to acknowledge uh, Tom and this wonderful, wonderful venture that makes Los Angeles proud to have a really first-class uh, literary journal. Uh, there's only one criticism that I have, and I might as well make it public. Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> you publish too often, and I can't catch up. <laughs> I have a backlog of articles that I want, that I want to read. Okay, so anyhow... Um, they, uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books will be publishing the first chapter of my actually first finished novel, uh, long before uh, City of Night. And that, that uh, novel is called Pablo. And it has an exclamation mark that is very important. Pablo exclamation mark to the meaning of the book. Um, I don't know where this book came from because it's set in the jungles of the Yucatan. It is framed with uh, Mayan legends, uh, the main one being that the sun and the moon at the beginning of time saw each other. No, the moon saw the sun and uh, fell in love and thought that the creator would certainly put them in the same constellation where they could consummate this love. Uh, that did not happen. God, in his infinite wisdom and meanness, uh, <laughs> separated, separated them. And uh, sometimes you can see the moon, uh, you know, at the edge of the sky, uh, weaving her hammock, the wispy clouds that occur very often at dawn. So she still uh, longs for the consummation. Uh, this is probably the bleakest book I ever wrote. And, <laughs> and I wrote it when I was 18 years old. Uh, I, I, it, I marvel at it. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what, what my interest in the legends was. They seemed particularly gruesome uh, for how I was feeling at that age. 
And um, so the book was, was finished, and then it went on its, on its journey, which is, I think, a, a bit amusing. Do I have time to say? Yes, yeah, please. Okay. Uh, I did send it out. I, I didn't say that I was 18 because I wanted the book to, to be on its own. Um, and I, I sent it out uh, to uh, the people who would be my publishers eventually. I think it was Grove Press, yeah. And it was rejected. Uh, and um, uh, I, I tried to revise it. And I, it, it. It's a little muddled, you know, the, the history of this. Uh, but I sent it again, and it was rejected again. Um, I, I, I left it. I tried to revise it. I didn't. Uh, I, I went into the Army, the 101st Airborne Infantry Division. And, um, and so I, I left that book. Then when I came out of the Army, I, I, I saw it again. I, I was going to go to Columbia under the GI Bill. I, I applied to Pearl Buck's writing class, and she turned me down. Uh, and, and years later, I was asked to to teach that course. <laughs> it was only because of a confusion of the seasons. I was being asked for uh, spring, and the gentleman called me up and said he had an apartment for me. I said, way ahead, because it's snowing in New York. And, and he said, no, 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 you're due here, you know, like next month. And there was no way I was going to go, so I didn't, I didn't go. Okay, uh, then I, I, I stayed in New York, and I put a, an ad in the August New York Times. There were no uh, no wonderful, um, you know, porn um, uh, outlets to put this. So I just put a an, an, an honest ad that said, um, "Ex infantryman, uh, knowledgeable in recording courts martials," which I did in the army, um, <laughs> seeks uh, employment. And I lived in a place that was called the Casbah of 34th Street, on the corner of 34th Street, where some of the people there, uh, this ancient building, were dead for about 10 years, and nobody knew. <laughs> uh, it was really a weird place, but it was wonderful. It was wonderful, and in a way. And there was a, a telephone on, in the hall. And the telephone started ringing. I was astonished that there was so much, um, so much interest. So among the interested was a, a really... Mm, top-notch magazine. I think it was Collier's, but I'm not sure. It was Red Book or one of those. And I, I, I went for an interview. I not even know what the job was going to be. But I met a man who, whose name was Mr. Tobe, who looked like a frog. <laughs> so the name stuck, Mr. Tobe the Frog. And, and he asked me if that's what I wanted, and I said, well, I do want to be a writer. I've written a book. Oh, he said, I surely would love to see the book. Uh, can, you, um, can you drop it off at the desk? My God, yes, of course I could. And I went and got Pablo and dropped it off. And then he called me and said, well, I'd like to talk to you about your book. And he gave me an address. It was not the office address, but listen, you know, what the hell? <laughs> so I took the address, and it was a place on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, I forget which it was. And, and I went past the doorman who looked at me in a strange way. And um, I went up, and I rang the bell for Mr. Tobe the Frog. 
And there the frog appeared in his bathrobe. And um, he wasn't interested in my writing. He, he had been interested in me. And I was very appalled. I never liked to mix one thing with another. I was very appalled. He wouldn't give me back my manuscript. Uh, but he had said, look, I'm reading it. It's right next to my, to, to my bedroom. Up, up the steps in this elaborate place, and um, and then he was already on the bed, and and I and I opened the drawer, and there was Pablo, and and <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs> and and he tried to stop me, and and then I lied to him. I I looked much younger than I was. I was maybe twenty one. Uh, and I looked younger, and I said to him, you never asked me how old I am. And I said, I'm 17, which did terrify him. And I said, <laughs> and the doorman asked me how old I am. <laughs> so, so that was that. <laughs> and then uh, Pablo went on to Black Sparrow, and the gentleman wanted to publish it, but he wanted me to revise it, and I thought that was unfair. <laughs> if this book, this book existed as I wrote it, and, and to redo it now would be fraudulent, and then claim that I had written it at age 18. That was fraudulent. So I did say no. There was some interim stuff. I forget what it was. Uh, well, okay, recently, uh, just, just to move over time, recently I was sent uh, by an eminent professor at UC um, um, San Bernardino? Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, where Michael, my, my wonderful mate, I dislike, I, I'm sorry, I have to say this, I dislike that nonsense about calling somebody a husband or calling another a wife, and you have two husbands, two wives, and that to me is just abominable, so I don't use that, that, that term. Uh, Michael is my mate, which is very adventurous and good, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate gay marriages when they imitate white marriages, heterosexual marriages, ugh. all the nonsense about cakes and white and grooms and ugh. And, oh, just despicable, just despicable to me. That's heterosexual imitation, and that's not what we wanted. But anyhow, uh, uh, we, we, did, we did manage to, to get married. And, and, and so at Arte Publico, the gentleman uh, accepted it, offered a contract, and even a nice advance. However, he wanted the most extraordinary rights. He wanted to own this book. Everything, translations, dramatic, especially translations, because, you know, it was Arte Publica. Mm. And uh, I showed it to my agent, and he said, no, don't take it. So now Pablo is waiting for a publisher, and it will, it will happen, and I will be very, very happy when it does. Yeah. I went on too long, Tom. No, not at all. I, uh, was that too long? No. no. <laughs> well, if it isn't, then I'll... <laughs> But it is uh, now. I've only read the chapter that we're that we're publishing, um, but it is a different um, register, let's say, than than anything else that you've written. Yeah. There's a there's an element of like kind of boys' adventure novel of kind of almost horror 
uh, ghost story-ish, right? There's witches, th- witches, and uh, and and Beheading. La Llorona and and Estebay, all the right? myths, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, it's uh, and and it has a kind of the kind of breathlessness of youth mm-hmm. to it in the in the writing. Right? One Things happen very fast. One sentence for <laughs> for each of the characters. One running sentence mm. for the interior of each of the characters. Uh, I must have read James Joyce, but I would like to say I hadn't. Mm. Well, that's part of what I wanted to ask you, is what were you reading at 17 that led to this book at 18? I was, I was really reading a lot. Most of my reading, God, by the time I read everything, from favorite books like Forever Amber, mm-hmm. which I, I, as a Catholic boy at the Immaculate Conception, I had to stand up with other congregants to swear that I would never read that book. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Swear. I mean, it's that fucking Catholic Church bullshit. That, yeah. Uh, so everybody read it. Yeah, I said, right, right. And, and of course, I, I rushed and stole it from a wonderful store. And, and the woman then became my friend, Molly Shapiro. Mm. Uh, oh, they were my saviors in El Paso, an intellectual group with a kid my age. They took me in. Frank Oppenheimer, Molly Shapiro, oh my God, they saved me. Anyhow, she said later, she saw me stealing the book, but she was thrilled. (laughs) 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 She she became one of my favorite people in the world forever. And I just really love her and Frank Oppenheimer, but um, they were wonderful. So anyhow, I read Forever Amber and it affected me. I thought, this is a terrific book for a writer to learn from. Uh, the book was dismissed as trash, but it was not trash. It was written in glorious Technicolor. It was terrific, and I knew how to, that she knew how to write in Technicolor. And then at the same time, because I, I just couldn't get enough of books, I was reading Molly Bloom uh-huh. and Marge Ode. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I got them confused, of course. <laughs> you know, and I, I've, I've used I've used an analogy in my classes, you know, about about adhering to the established verisimilitude that you choose. And I say, uh, if if Marjode was on the yellow brick road and encountered Dorothy, both narratives would crash because of the expectation, because of the break, not in reality, not at all, but in fraudulence, in the lie that one establishes. And and you could not believe that Marjode would be onto The Wizard of Oz or that Dorothy would stumble into the depression. Um, So anyhow, and I was reading that, I was reading Dostoevsky, I was reading Nietzsche. Mmm, I just say anybody, oh, leave her to heaven, the foxes of Harrow, the, mm. <laughs> the romantic books, you know, the big bestsellers, I loved them. Taylor Caldwell, Frank Irby, and uh, Schopenhauer. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was great. It was a, Everybody it was, was reading Frank Irby and Schopenhauer at uh, one point, right? <laughs> I think. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's what I was right, reading. Um, I want to go back to the to the idea of fraudulence uh, and to fraudulence. You said uh, that the problem with Dorothy and and uh, and Ma Jode meeting is not that they're breaking reality, but they're breaking the the fraudulence, which is keeping their 
worlds alive. Yes, right? yes. I mean, you know, you could do it. Look at the vampire stories with the, that in, are introduced into uh, uh, renowned books, which is very, very strange. And it's, it's okay. Yeah, you could do it. I mean, what a terrific satire that we have. Old Ma Joad, you know, uh, on the track to... Uh, to California on the Dust Bowl, encountering old Dorothy, crazy old Dorothy, uh, and and she is crazy, incidentally. <laughs> and so, oh God, I, so was Judy Garland. You know, when I was a little boy, and I first saw Judy Garland in Meet Me in St. Louis, and she sang "Clang, Clang, Clang" with the trolley. I hid under the, the chairs because I knew she knew what I knew, that she was crazy and that we were all tempted. <laughs> and I saw those eyes and the desperation. I knew she'd die bad. I knew it. But anyhow, that's, that's I, the poor old Judy Garland. She was okay. She was okay. Yeah. Well, to jump all the way ahead to the new book, right? The other new book, not the old new book, but the new new yeah. book, um, which is um, you're, you're, you're foregrounding the fact uh, that it is both factual and fraudulent. Yeah. Is that fair to say? And the, the, the title of the book, which is finished and, and at Grove and will be published, is called Island Island. Um, each word is followed by an exclamation part. I don't have a fetish for exclamation marks. It just happens that my first book and my latest book require exclamation marks. Okay, so I have always been fascinated by the claim of authenticity or truth, especially by autobiographers. I think they are the biggest liars in the in the constellation of writers. I, I mean, Jesus. To, Believe that you can remember, whereas memory is the, the harshest editor. What I remember today, tomorrow's going to change. It's going to change entirely. Uh, you know, time is not immutable at all. So, in in in, uh, I I've always said that you know the biographer is the next big liar. How can you possibly think that you can know? another person and write intimately. That began when I read a book by Stefan Zweig. It was a biography of on the French Revolution and Marie Antoinette. I was so I was living in the projects, uh, the government projects. We, you know, again, every writer has to say, we were really poor, you know. <laughs> and you know, that's gotta be a badge uh, and, and stuff. But when it's true, it's true. Uh, or maybe I'm making it up, see. But, <laughs> but anyhow, I was in the projects and I saw the movie Marie Antoinette and I thought, what injustice, they killed this beautiful Norma Shear, you know, chopped her head off. <laughs> and I was surrounded by you know people who would have chopped their head off. Mm -hmm. But I was sympathetic to Marie Antoinette, so I started a book. Actually, that was probably my first. I was about 14, and I started a book called Time on Wings, uh, which took the, the side of the French Revolutionary against the revolutionaries and pro-Marie Antoinette. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. But, you know, I... I wrote about 400, 400 pages of the damn thing. It doesn't exist because I got very melodramatic when I went in the army and burned everything. Uh -huh. After that, I started Brutal Reality, uh, a book called uh, 
bitter roots. And that was a, a scandalous expose of sex life in high school. <laughs> that was good. That really was good. Anyhow, that, that also got, uh, got burned along the way. And um, now, I, uh, there was, you know, the pretense of autobiography. I, I wrote one. And it's full of lies. <laughs> it's full of fucking lies. And, and I love them. They're, they're <laughs> in this new book, there's a, the, which is also a treatise on writing, Island Island is really the summation of my work, really. It's at once uh, a suspense book. Uh, it's a thriller, uh, a mystery. Uh, a treatise on how to write. Uh, I I use, you know, rules of writing supposedly, and then exemplify them in the narrative, and then say that's not possible. Uh, this exemplifies. There's a passage in the book where a scene happens uh, that I think actually happened when I was a guest on this private island, and and. And then the narrator, who's called John Ritchie, but he's 20-something he's at the time. Uh, I once was. <laughs> and, uh, at the, and, and he says, um, if I ever write about what happened, no one would believe it. I would have to fictionalize it. Then he proceeds to fictionalize what you are meant to think actually happened. And then you're left to wonder which one did. The book begins over and over and over, changing elements throughout. Okay, The whole thing is, even in the technique, tenses. I changed tenses. I started with City of Night, actually. Uh, I used present tense and past tense, even in the same sentence, when something in the past becomes very relevant, it pushes into the present and shoves the present away and becomes itself yeah. present. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to do that in, in the technique that I've chosen, which is to shift right in the middle of a sentence from past to present. My stupid editor. Oh. <laughs> Questioned it. Ooh. And, and such stupidity that I had to point out to her to look at page 80 in the book where the host of this budding writer asks him, because by then he's written some short pieces that I had written, and, and the host says, um, I note that in some sentences, you shift from past to present, right in the same sentence. What do you intend? And then I answer, like I answered here, I want to vanish the, the demarcation in time so that it is one plane of experience, uh, remembered or not, mm -hmm. fiction or not. Well, can you believe this editor then? 
I wrote and said, do you realize that you shift from past to present in the same <laughs> sense? Oh, Lord, have mercy. I, listen, I can brag about a lot of things, and I'm going to. I, <laughs> I know grammar inside out. Why? Because a miraculous happenstance, and, you know, fate to me is fascinating because it really is a series of inevitable accidents that collide. You know, that one dinosaur didn't eat a tribe and, and you know, determines who ran into each other at the parking lot of Sears. <laughs> if, if you follow the inevitability of it. And, and that's the only fate that you can retrospective inevitability. That's what I, that's what I say in a book might, might happen. And so uh, I, I, then the narrator does answer why uh, he wants to do this and is there. So when she said that I did this and why, I just quoted the whole damn thing and sent it to her. You know, again, you know, I, t I tell writers, there is a block of stupidity waiting for you. You have to know that it's there, it's solid, it's, it's shaky. Uh, it has its own lies and devices uh, to shatter you. And I've seen some terrific writers in my group, terrific writers who have been undone. Uh, Michael studied with the renowned teacher Stella Adler. And what he tells me about her, I agree with her a lot. But uh, Michael, you, you, you tell, or may I tell? No, please tell. Okay, this is Michael's story, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the bright students asked Ms. Adler, full of wisdom and wonderful arrogance, and meanness, too. Okay, I know how you feel about her, but anyhow, she was. Asked her, uh, how do you feel about having nurtured some of the great acting of our life. And she mentioned Marlon Brando. Meryl Streep. And who? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, who's in every movie in the world. Uh, okay, and she mentioned this roster. And, and Ms. Adler, according to Michael's story, and I, I do believe it, because he tells the truth, uh, <laughs> answered, yes, that was wonderful. But what I remember often are the ones that were more who were more talented and fell out. Mm. And I think of that over and over. I see some faces here that I know are quite as talented as the people, as that man who drew two million dollars because somebody was buying his book and, and everybody went into a tizzy over it. And, and there it is. And I, and I look around and I think, oh my God, more talented here, and and oh God, all I all I can say is I I hope that that you recover from that and you know push on if you are arrogant enough to know that you are good. I detest humility. It is a posture for people to go to the Golden Globes, and the first thing they do. And I have a terror of sounding as if I'm getting an Academy Award. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, then first they thank God. What an incredible thing. They thank God for blessing them and fucking everybody else over. <laughs> <laughs> 
didn't they pray, you know, to the Lord and say, please? And, you know, screw you. I got this one. So they stand up there and say, I want to thank God. I mean, this makes me cringe, cringe, cringe. And then uh, the Pope says it. The Pope is a degenerate man. He's, he's the worst. He's the most fraudulent of these people. He's a reactionary, and he's playing a big role and not very well. Anyhow, that's my, that's my belief. Uh, but... But well, one of, the, one of the one of the things that I mentioned uh, to somebody tonight was that the first thing that you um, wanted to show me when I visited your home the first time was question? the shelf of books of your students that your students had published. Oh, you were you were you were you're, you are you are uh, you've taught so many people in Los Angeles. Yeah. You've been such a center of literary activity in Los Angeles, yeah. and and it is it is uh, that you you were not. Interested in talking about your own books first at all? You're interested in talking about your students' yeah. work. Um, but that 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 again is is in the matter of of humility. If you have what to be humble about, go ahead and be it. But an artist has no no right to be humble. My God, you're dealing with creation. That's. That calls for arrogance and pride and, and self-love and all the good things that people say are not good. And, um, and, and so humility, everybody, I'm humbled by this award. No, then don't take it. <laughs> if you're humbled by an award like this, this dinner is honoring and, and I love it and everything, so I, I, I'm humbled by this guy. I am not. <laughs> I am not. I'm elevated. And I think that the people that came together to join in, in, in a celebration of, of a creation should not be humbled either. We should all be elevated when, you know, our triumphs, when the magazine triumphs, when Tom comes along and makes the, the Los Angeles Review. And I don't that. deserve that praise. I really oh, don't. Oh, I, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> listen, he's <laughs> humble. Uh, can you, can, can you talk, uh, tell us a little bit about the story that's in the center of Island Island? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Let's because you've that. written about it before. Uh -huh. I wrote a book called The Vampires, which was uh, a fantasy, you know, it was a technicolor a la Forever Amber and, and, and witchcraft and all kinds of things. And it was written in technicolor. A uh, really, really wonderful book. You might want to look it up. And, um, okay, so that was The Vampires. What happened that my memory does hold is that after I had written a couple of short stories, uh, that then became parts of City of Night. I, I started getting letters from people. I was stunned that, that these short stories published in little magazines, Evergreen Review, Big Table, were arousing so much interest. Uh, a part of that was, and I was living on Hope Street, <laughs> uh, a part of that was a gentleman who wrote me, uh, admiring my writing, and said, uh, would I like to spend the summer on his private island? Uh, and I thought, great, why not? Mm -hmm. And I waited for him to send the fare, and, I, and it didn't come. At that time, I traveled with my army duffel bag. Whatever fit there was good. Whatever didn't was thrown out. So anyhow, he wrote, 
and mm, I unpacked my duffel bag because no, no ticket was forthcoming, so I thought, bullshit. Uh, but then the ticket came. Michael's father said, you responded to somebody's offer of spending the summer with people you didn't know? Well, <laughs> that, that was almost a, a way of life, as it turned out. But, <laughs> but I went. I expected, quite honestly, I did expect. Uh, I, uh, I was, what, at the time, 20-something. And I did expect um, uh, a very suave gentleman of the middle age uh, who had somehow extrapolated a fantasy from a photograph and my story. And that didn't matter to me. It was a good, good deal. <laughs> And um, so I went to my astonishment. This was not at all what happened at all. This was a, not only a, an extremely handsome man, uh, but he informed me that on the island were his mistress, his son, and uh, perhaps one of his two other wives might be visiting. The whole thing was turned upside down. And, and in the book, then, I have to deal with this. Uh, his mistress was one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. Uh, his son was a replica of him, and he detested me and tried to drown me on the lake. Uh, okay, so I spent the summer there. He turned out to be this extraordinary man. When, when I walked up the island, I was greeted by six statues lined up on the lawn. They were Giacometti's. They were his. In my room was Miro's bird in flight. But he, that was his alimony. He had married, although it was, it was again, fraudulent. He, he, had, he had worked his way through college on scholarships, but pretended that, that he was very rich. He became. He came in touch, and I won't mention the people because they're all they're all famous. Okay, I want to tantalize you, uh, but I won't. So he worked his way into the highest academic circle in the country at the time, and ended up marrying the daughter of a famous academic and his famous wife, and he married into them, and used that then eventually, to marry the heiress of one of the great American fortunes. He helped her buy all these paintings, and then when he was divorcing her, he took them as alimony and made his own fortune. And, you know, he's a very, very wealthy man. Anyhow, this is the man that, 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 that was there, and, and out of that came this... Uh, impossible fiction, impossible reality. Some of it is beyond belief, and I put it down as beyond belief. You can't, you can't believe this, and I leave it up to the reader eventually to determine which is the truth. I, I do wonderful things in it. Yes, not humble. I, I <laughs> one favorite place. One favorite place is where. Uh, the the host asks the narrator, uh, and it's all true, 
And, and then they said, none of it is true. <laughs> in fact, when I write in first person, I create some really awful thing that didn't happen so that the reader will say, what an honest man, can you believe he's telling us this? <laughs> and it, I know it never happened. So in this book, I have several ugly things, and I leave it up to the reader. Which one did happen somewhat? Mm -hmm. And which one is he lying about? See, it's all about lying. The epigraph is a favorite from uh, supposedly an apocryphal story. I love apocryphal stories because they exist before the people are placed. An event occurs, and then along comes somebody who can fit. And I am sure that this was that this did not happen, but I love it. It is said that Gertrude Stein, on her dying bed, on her dying bed, was opposed by Alice B. Toklas, and that Alice B. Toklas leaned over the dying Gertrude Stein. It's a wonderful thing. If it didn't happen, it should have happened, and it did happen. <laughs> and and said to her, "What is the answer?" And Gertrude Stein answered, what is the question? I love that, because finally I think that art asks questions, and by happenstance may provide answers, you know, revolution or something like that. But otherwise, that's not the purpose of a, of a writer or an artist. What is truth? I mean, Pontius Pilate, no. Uh, what is the question? That's a perfect. That. That's a perfect way for us to move into the question period, isn't it? I, can't, I mean, very nice of you to set that up like that. <laughs> I was good, wasn't I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. All right. Uh, the New York Review. Oh, the famous book, uh, you famous stop. Review. Oh, you're going to do it. An evil old queen. <laughs> the worst of our kind. We all have known evil queens. This, <laughs> this was the most evil, who had a reputation in New York of being a very acerbic writer, had taken on Edward Albee and Nabokov. Uh, he, he was a minor writer who thought he was major, he asked to review City of Night during the New York Times uh, a strike, Oops. and uh, he was so eager to trash it. Uh, he, he wrote, before the publication of City of Night, he wrote in the August New York Review of Books a review titled Fruit Salad. The opening is so vicious that I have memorized it, and I will share it. <laughs> Despite the adorable photograph of the author, I doubt that he exists. And from there, it was, oh, it was, it was utterly vicious. Okay, it took me 50 years to get the goddamn New York Review of Books to give me space. Unfortunately, the son of a bitch had already died by setting fire to himself. So you know what a kind person he was. Uh, and finally, 
I was able to answer that. I'm now writing a terrific article, a kind of short book called Talking Back. Every writer has heard, oh, don't you talk back to the reviewers. They'll, they'll, they'll black you out. You'll never be reviewed. They'll, they'll you know, what are they called? Black bait. What do you call it? Um, yes, yes, ban you. Yeah, okay. So anyhow, that, that sort of thing. My God, every writer has heard it. Every writer has heard it. And it's bullshit. I will not allow a vicious review. I will, I will thank a, a, um, uh, a good, even if it's negative, but if the person understood, I will write a letter. I, I've got a collection of letters. I also have a collection of letters. <laughs> Uh, to the, especially the New York Times. Oh, and what a stupidity. Do you realize that people will say, the New York Times said, the New York Times can speak? It cannot. Some idiot that was, by happenstance, fell into the job, wrote, and now he is the spokesman for the New York Times. And they're stupid. So I fell in with that. No review for one of my books. Uh, I wrote Rebecca Sinclair, uh, and then she wrote back that, well, she'd take a chance, she'd look at it and everything, and they did review it. But I got a good review, and can you believe that my publisher said, oh, you should never have done that. In fact, one of my publishers said I had ruined the opportunity for every one of their writers living and dead. <laughs> that's something. That's really something to brag about, isn't it? Okay, so that sort of thing. And I face that sort of thing. Ignorance, ignorance. A book of mine that is set in, in the new Hollywood, where homeless people roam and everything. The Miraculous Day of Mario Gomez opens with a description of old Hollywood, and it's a new Hollywood now. The reviewer said, he roams through, through East Los Angeles, and my God, it was all wrong. Another reviewer about this day's death, we never know why Jim Gerard went to Griffith Park. I wrote, and I said, please read page such and such, where, <laughs> where I ask, and why did Jim Gerard go that day to Griffith Park? And I answer, because, and there it is, they get all angry and annoyed that you have caught them, that you have fucking caught them. Well, you but, told me this story, and that's why I started LARP. That's, that why, was why? that's why I started the Los Angeles Review of Books. Yes. To, as a corrective. Yes. Yeah. So. John, you are one of the great guys. We want to thank you for your writing. We want to thank you for your guidance. We want to thank you for being here with us tonight. Thank you. Thank Always you. an yeah. absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.